0: Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South. This is the Suwannee Review podcast. I'm Adam Ross, editor of the Sewanee Review, and we're coming to you today from Portland, Oregon, at the 2019 AWP conference. My guest today is memoirist and essayist Melissa Fibas, author of the books Abandon Me and Whip Smart. She also has a new book coming out very soon that we'll talk about, uh, Girlhood, a collection of essays. Yes, Melissa? Mm -hmm. And uh, we were fortunate enough to publish an essay from that in the spring issue of the 2019 Suwannee Review. Melissa, welcome to the Suwannee Review podcast. Thank you, Adam. Um, I've been live, I've been living in, uh, in your head, in your worlds for, uh, several weeks now, uh, and, 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 and very enjoyably. Um, I
1: I was, I was going to say, should I offer you condolences? You're welcome. (laughs) It could go either way, depending on your sort of disposition.
0: (laughs) No, it's good because, um, so many of your narratives, um, have the structure of, recovery narratives and redemptive narratives. Mm -hmm. They're they're, they're all redemptive, and I think they're, um, even when they're at their darkest, they're very hopeful. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that was interesting to me for a writer who writes from self, about self, was that you never talk about, or you never talk in any of your work about what drove you to memoir as a form Mm as opposed to, say, fiction. And so I guess what I was wondering was, how did that fork in the road happen?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, like many writers I found, I started by writing poetry. And I think this came out of um, the feeling of it being more accessible. Um, And, you know, the mistaken belief early on that you didn't have to make as much sense writing poetry and my own sort of facility for image and figures and language and the really simple sort of instinctive pleasure of that for me um and from that in college I switched over to fiction um because a teacher said to me you write very beautiful you have this sort of fluency with images and yet it seems that you're not really saying very much so what do you read and I said novels and they said well maybe you should try writing fiction so I switched to fiction um And I entered my MFA program as a fiction writer, and I was always curious about nonfiction, but I didn't think—you know, I had a pretty unconventional education. I'm a high school dropout, um, and I had been— a really feverish reader for my entire life, but it wasn't, you know, the Western canon. And I didn't have um, permanent opinions about uh, politics or history and had a very changing mind. And I didn't yet know that that was universal. And I thought I wasn't qualified to write nonfiction because of that. Um, And so I took... An elective in my second year of grad school, and I was so intimidated by nonfiction that I took an undergraduate course. It was sort of a survey course, and we wrote a book review and an op ed, and we came around to memoir. And I had, I was working, or I had recently quit working as a dominatrix, and I had never written about it and never intended certainly to write nonfiction about it. I figured I would have a, um, an ancillary character in a short story someday. Um, but I just started writing about it without really even deciding to. And that experience was one of the very few sort of breakthrough kind of white light moments in my creative life. Um, and I showed it to my teacher and he said, what are you working on? And I said. You know I'm working on a very important novel, and he was like, "Well, you need to stop working on your very important novel um, and write this memoir." And I said, "That's that's very nice, but absolutely not." Um, and but as probably you know, as an artist, when when something a true thing about your own practice or subject that. Need you to write about it comes knocking. Um, you can ignore that knocking, but once you open the door, it's hard to get it to leave. And that was true for me. And so I kept sort of secretly working on the book. Um, and for me, you know, if I were to write in my work, which I haven't, as you said, about sort of why nonfiction or why the self, and I think for me, it instantly became a place where I could tell the truth in a way that I could not. In my life, and a way for me to have a conversation and also be alone, have complete privacy, and have a conversation about something I needed to figure out. Um, It is, I do my best thinking in writing nonfiction. And so, um, even if I never published it again, I would continue. It has been so completely integrated into my life as a as a way of thinking and kind of an external mill for my own thoughts and experience and the integration of that experience into my selfhood that i I could never I could never stop
0: that 's interesting because it sounds to me and but correct me if i 'm wrong that um, it was almost as if the subject was the ship the outboard ship on which you Mm -hmm. began to sail in Mm -hmm. writing as opposed to I was going to ask you sort of who were your progenitors in memoir I mean who Mm -hmm. were you reading where you were like electrified but it sounds Mm -hmm. to me like maybe they Mm -hmm. were more writers of fiction than necessarily memoir
1: yeah um that is somewhat true I will also say that as a young person, as that young, feverish reader, I never differentiated between memoir and novels. I just read stories and Mm -hmm. I didn't care. It didn't really mean anything to me. The word memoir barely registered for me. I just loved characters and stories and language. Um, And so, you know, as it happens, the books that I, you know, there's the books that you sort of love and worship, and then there are the books that taught you, and those are somewhat um, distinct categories for me. Um, those books happen to mostly be novelists. Um, but I think that's somewhat incidental.
0: Well, but, but but let's talk about that because, again, you know, you, you said you were 26 when you published Whip Smart?
1: No, I was 26 when I wrote it. How long did it take? It took me about three years, mm-hmm. um, or I guess I was 25. Could that even be? I was 25 or 26 when I started it, and it was published when I was 29, which is outrageously fast, I now mm-hmm. know. Yes. Um, but I think I had been you know the everything is in that book that i had ever written before it you know um sure. the the novel that i had sort of written as my undergraduate thesis the novel that i was writing in my graduate program um i had been sort of working my way around this story for so long and and learning how to write through sort of um disguised versions of it and then when i gave myself the permission to just say what happened um it, it all that training sort of let me write it re- pretty quickly. I actually took a six-month break to do more research in therapy (laughs) and then was able to finish it. Um, But for me, and and I find that this is a distinction that I recognize pretty clearly between fiction and nonfiction writers. Um, For me, the constraint of nonfiction and the reliance on memory and the somewhat finite amount of raw material that you have to work with is incredibly liberating. You know, like... with that constraint, I can just sort of rocket forward. And when I have this great luxury of possibility, when invention is possible in the way that it's possible in fiction, I feel stymied and paralyzed by that. And so while I can enjoy writing fiction, it takes me much, much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it, it gives me too many places to hide.
0: That's interesting. I, I, I wish I could say that, uh, as a fiction writer, that it, uh, <laughs> the need to invent is extraordinarily liberating. I do think you have to kind of like often find
1: mm-hmm.
0: that 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 place where your writing catches that lift and where where invention does take over um what I was curious about and which I guess we could um because again the the, the there's a way in which you kind of you stumble into writing right mm-hmm. but I, I I think the thing i guess what I'm asking is now that you are a memoirist and when you began to think of yourself self-consciously as one or even more importantly as you were there getting up every day blacksmithing Mm -hmm. as it were when did you start reading memoir self-consciously do you make that distinction now
1: yeah I do make that distinction now Um, so who
0: who are the people where you're like that book rocks me
1: yeah in terms of nonfiction absolutely um, I mean I think you know and I can actually look back and find those books now um Because I do make the distinction now, and um Audrey Lord Zami made a really big impression on me. Um, there are a lot of um, I mean, now we say mixed form or lyric essays or whatever. Um, but there were a lot of sort of works like that that made an impression on me. um Leslie Marmon Silko's storyteller, um. You know, even I would say like Bell Hook's Teaching to Transgress, which combines like personal narrative and instruction and essay. um, And uh, now uh, I just had breakfast with one of my favorite memoirists who's also a friend, which is Lacey Johnson, Mm. who wrote The Other Side and an essay collection that came out last year called The Reckonings. And, you know, she is in that category of writers that I find instructive. Um, you know, I love to read sort of much more inventive, fantastical um novels and and I admire those in a particular way. but the books that I find instructive are those in which I see the thing that I am trying to do right, you know um and
0: which is which is also a, a bit of a dangerous business as you're writing right?
1: yeah, it is it is although I've never you know, I think for some people it's important not to read things that are like what you're writing, but uh, for me, so that it's not, was... It's not
0: infectious for you. No,
1: it's not. I mean, I think I am compelled by my own voice <laughs> enough that, at least at this point, um, I don't know, I only sort of write about things that feel really urgent to me, and mm. that momentum is always greater than the momentum, momentum of another voice in my head. Um, and I think if I were writing fiction and sort of writing from characters' voices, that that might be more of a concern. Um but I don't know. Sort sort of the fiction voices that really informed me are Jeanette Winterson and Siri Husvet. And with nonfiction, I would say Audre Lorde, um, and much more sort of contemporary people that I've been reading. As I as I've begun teaching, I think teaching has really led me to sort of making that distinction and looking at genres as more discrete, um, because that's asked of us as teachers to sort of assign texts and speak about them in terms of genre. Awesome.
0: want to talk about your most recent work first Mm -hmm. um, and then work our way back to Abandon Me and Whip Smart. Uh, We had the good fortune at the Swanee Review of publishing Thesmophoria, your essay about mothers and daughters. Um, It's steeped in myth. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk about the role of myth in your work. And I was wondering if it comes from the source, if it comes from Dolaire's Book of Myths and Mm -hmm. Robert Graves' Or does it come from psychology? Right. Um, uh, Or both?
1: Yeah, I think it comes from both. Mm -hmm. You know, I, like most writers who incorporate myth into their work, I fell in love with it really early as a kid. um, And then stayed in love with it through sort of psychological modes. Um, And I think, you know, I am trying to make sense of my own stories, right? And so archetypes are incredibly helpful you know sort of using narrative to graft this incredible chaos and mess of experience onto it to extract a certain a single lesson um and to filter um there's just too much to process right and so for me sort of looking to older stories or structures helps me narrow it down you know um i like i remember being a kid and reading or thinking or just like absorbing the narratives of sort of my family's life and my school life and all of the ways I had of understanding things and feeling so profoundly overwhelmed, right? And it was in reading that I felt relieved with that and was able to sort of pull out single threads of my own experience and make some kind of sense of them. And so I'm I'm very much still enacting that process as a writer.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, w- what's interesting... What's interesting in your work is, um, the presence constantly, whether it's with a perversion or addiction mm-hmm. or, or struggles in relationships with the, the need for counter narrative, mm-hmm. counter narrative mm-hmm. as a counter narrative as a, uh, as a place to hide mm-hmm. counter narrative as a kind of, uh, way of mm-hmm. becalming oneself, mm-hmm. um, Mm-hmm. And then of course the need to escape that counter narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking how, when I was growing up, um, life was full of all these either ors like Brady Bunch or Partridge family, mm-hmm. like <laughs> Marsha or Jan Burger mm-hmm. King or McDonald's. Um, mm-hmm. so are, are you a Freud or a young girl?
1: Oh, young all the way, yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. I mean, really more Winnicott than either of them, but um, but certainly uh, I have a Jungian tilt um, but I am very much like a you know magpie or bower bird or uh, I just take what I need and leave the rest you know <laughs> and and I leave most of it <laughs> um, and th- I mean, that's how I feel about sort of myth or a- anything that I'm sort of borrowing from. Um, I don't know. I remember ooh, when I was really young, it, I I remember thinking about sort of all of the things I was interested in and feeling so overwhelmed. And I remember the very specific moment when I realized that being a writer meant that I could be sort of like a hack expert in anything I wanted <laughs> and that I didn't have to sort of follow anybody else's rules. I could sort of roam around according to my own curiosity and interest. And, um, you know, I'm sure to the great dismay of like academics and sociologists and everyone else's uh, field that I'm sort of drawing from. Um, but it is a great pleasure to sort of um, cruise through things and sort of take what I need um, in the service of the story that I'm I'm trying to make sense of. And I mean, I think Thesmophoria is a good example of this. Um, because, you know, I started writing it, and I, I never plan on any of the sort of outside texts or stories or psychologists or whatever that I sort of draw into the work. I almost never plan any of that. I just start writing it and then sort of grab what I need as I go. Um, very much sort of like building a little nest or a structure with with found things um, for my own purposes. And um, and I early on, I remember I was at this residency in in the south of France, and it was like super hot, and I was like writing in my underwear, sweating, being eaten alive by mosquitoes, and I just felt sort of like feral. And and I was writing the essay and the um, Persephone myth started creeping into it and I remember uh, Skyping with with my partner with Danika and saying like can I do this like it's been can I write a story about a mother and a daughter and bring in this myth like how how tired is that comparison it's much too obvious and she said to me well if you do the thing that you do which is sort of peel away the expected layer and do something surprising with it that is yours then yes of course you can um, I am. Um,
0: you, 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 you make me uh, I feel like I'm right now a genius to my staff because, <laughs> because we have three criteria by which we, w- which we talk about work at the uh-huh. review. In terms of if we're, if we're thinking of accepting something, mm-hmm. we have three criteria w- where we sort of analyze it. And one is does, does the writer have authority? In other words, does the writer have total command over the world he or she is describing? Mm-hmm. She could be describing unicorns, and if she really knows the ins and outs of unicorns in a way that's utterly believable, then that sits you down, that makes you comfortable. There's no wobble in the narrative. The other is stickiness, which is the degree to which uh, the thing uh, stays with you for days. We can't shake it. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, as an editor, I'm always like, well, if I can't shake it, probably another reader can't shake it. But the one you mentioned uh, is, does it bring news? Mm-hmm. Does it newly mint something? since everything's been written about in a way that's mm-hmm. fresh, which, which, which Thesmophoria really does. I, I'm, I'm interested then about how you, how you did wade into it, because it seems to me it's written from two emotional poles about, about the Demeter myth. And I was wondering if you could read the first for us, please. Mm-hmm. Happily. And maybe you disagree.
1: The Rape of Persephone is depicted by hundreds of artists across thousands of years. In epic poetry, the word rape is often translated as a synonym for abduction to temper its violence. In most sculpture, Persephone writhes in the arms of Hades, torquing her soft body away from his muscled arms and enormous legs. Consider Gian Lorenzo Bernini's famous Baroque version, in which Hades's fingers press into her thighs and waist. The white stone is so yielding as to seem flesh-like, Persephone's arms fully extended while her hands push against his face and head. In Rembrandt's rape of Proserpina, as Hades' chariot plunges through foaming water into darkness and the oceanids cling to her satin skirts, he grasps Persephone's leg and pulls her into his pelvis. Her gown hides the rest. My mother surely feared that I would be raped. It was a legitimate concern— in hindsight, I'm surprised it never happened. Perhaps because I feared it as much as she did, or because I so often yielded to those who would have otherwise forced themselves on me. It must have felt like an abduction to my mother, as if someone had stolen her daughter and replaced her with a minad. I chose to leave her, to lie, to rush to places where men might lay their hands on me, but I was still a child. Who then was my abductor? Can we call it Hades? Hades. The desire that filled me like smoke that chased everything else out. I was frightened, yes, but I went willingly. Perhaps that was the scariest part. I've never read from it out loud. That was the very first time. Is that the really the yeah. first time? <laughs> I'm so glad. Really it's good. Nice. It was, it's, it's a little bit thrilling because, you know. Um,
0: do you read your work aloud when you're working on it?
1: I do. Almost incessantly, actually, but not like that. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. I started doing this during uh, the writing of "Abandon Me, which is so um, sort of sonically and and phonically driven. Um, And then when I was working on this book, I just kept doing it where I would whisper aloud to myself everything I was writing as I was writing it. So I can sort of no longer write in public spaces (laughs) because I'm like... She's crazy. And just muttering... yeah, so I do that, but that's very different. It's like this process that's happening inside my head. It's with no—I'm not picturing an audience or really even listening to my voice. I'm sort of like—it's um, like keeping time almost.
0: The thing that's interesting. The, 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 there are two ways to talk about that passage. As I said, it, it to me is 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 one of the thematic poles, or or one of the binaries, or one mm-hmm. of the, the one of the sort of tensions in the in the in the essay. Um, there seemed. There seem to you to be limits to that analogy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In that particular time, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's a there's a limit for you to the idea of Hades being mm-hmm. something out there, mm-hmm. and so I guess I want to talk about two things, which is what what are for you the limits that uh, of that analogy before mm-hmm. we get to the other pole, and then what's the what becomes the art, of, of of an essay like this? Because, mm-hmm. you're really writing something that's mimetic of thinking, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. So, um, I mean, I think part of the way that I use myth um, or sort of big ideas or binaries, um, I sort of take the big structure, and throw my story against it, and and start to pick it apart in a way. And for me, um, I, I think my the story making that I do as I'm living is much more binary, is much more simplistic than actual experience. Um, and and that's the way we have to think of it to to survive it a lot of the time and certainly to move through it and sometimes to dismiss it. But when I'm writing, I'm I'm always trying to complicate something, right? That's that's why I'm writing about it. I'm looking for for those details that I had to let go of or submerge in order to survive something. And so I think the um, the myth, as you said, I mean, it's the, the underworld and the upper world, right? It's um, good and evil. It's um, power and disempower and uh, choice and no choice, right? Uh, and so for me, a lot of times the experiences that I live through and that I end up writing about like addiction um, or, you know, uh, really intense love or obsession... Um, or secrets, um, it's easy to think of those in binary terms, right? And, and they're not, you know?
0: Right. So, so in a way it seems like you're, you're always working against the idea of the binary.
1: Right. Right. And I think I'm always looking in writing about the self, I am always looking to take more accountability, to exert more self scrutiny, um, to, Give myself more agency, right? Like it is, and this is one of the the ironies of sort of being a memoirist is that uh, people like to say that memoir is all about sort of victimhood and being a victim and um, this kind of trauma narrative uh, bias that's out there. And and actually, for me at least, and I think for for most memoirists, it's the opposite. For me, it's about sort of reclaiming my own power in the past. And instead of thinking about this thing that happened to me, thinking about this thing that I designed, whether it was consciously or unconsciously, right? And so I think I didn't begin this essay thinking about Persephone choosing Hades or loving him, right? Um, but those things that I choose that that I think sort of more broadly in the world are thought of as, as evil or bad or disempowering for me in my life, um, and I've discovered this through writing about them, they have always been sometimes ill-advised, but... Um, never ultimately self-destructive. They were things that I chose because I needed aspects of them for a time, right? They were a more intricate form of, of survival, right? Well well, it,
0: it seems to me that by exploding binaries, you end up stumbling into where enlargement and forgiveness live,
1: mm-hmm.
0: both for yourself as mm-hmm. protagonist and subject, mm-hmm. and for the subjects who come into your narratives.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I and I think, you know, I, I'm not I'm not even sure. I had a conversation this morning about forgiveness a little bit, and I'm not sure where I sit with it towards other people or what that really means. But I do know that one part of writing for me, a big part of it, is. Uh, Making myself accountable for for my past and my experiences as much as I can, and therefore, sort of the forgiveness that I arrive at is almost always self-forgiveness, you know?
0: I'll just add for context for 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 readers who um, who haven't had a chance to read this uh, at swanireview.com, dot com since it's our online feature, and it's 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 available to anyone who just comes to the site. I mean, it's really about the history of your of your self abductions, mm-hmm. um, of, of the way, uh, fr- from your mother, as you were growing up, as you came into womanhood and trying to understand, um, where, where the line is between, um, separation, self-harm, mm-hmm. selfhood. Um, it brings me to the, the other pole, uh, And it it really dovetails, I think, with what you just said. If you could could read that passage.
1: As the memories of stories are changed with each telling, they are more irrevocably changed with each conquest, each colonizer, each assimilation of one people into another. But there are older versions of Demeter's story, precursors to the Greek, that emerged from a system of matrifocal mythology and likely a society whose values it reflected. In it, Persephone is already home, Her time spent in the dark is not an aberration of nature, but it's enactment. I've come to see mine the same way. My darkness has become my work on this earth. I return to my mother again and again, and both realms are my home. There is no Hades, no abductor. There is only me. There is nothing down there that I haven't found a piece of in myself. I am glad that I have learned that I do not have to hide this from her. It helps that the darkness is now less likely than ever to kill me. I can hold both of these stories together in my mind. There is room for one in the other. The first myth of mother and daughter, I sacrifice on the first day of Thesmophoria, cathodos, a ritual violence. The other, I retrieve on the third day, calaginia, and sprinkle in the fields. All of my violences might be seen this way, a descent, a rise, a sowing. If we sow them, every sacrifice becomes a harvest." Wow, there's the thesis.
0: Well, so yeah, I mean, I mean, that <laughs> seems to me to be a central shift mm-hmm. that's present mm-hmm. in all your work. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to quote, there's that great quote in the Psalms, the light and the dark are one, I am mm-hmm. fearfully and wonderfully made. Mm-hmm. It's this idea of seeing what originally was, was thought of as external mm-hmm. and a threat to self mm-hmm. as, in fact, internal. Mm-hmm. If it's internal, mm-hmm. it's something that you can examine, understand, mm-hmm. and maybe not completely control mm-hmm. because control is also so central to a lot of your thinking in these right. memoirs, but to at least be aware of.
1: To be aware of and maybe even... Um, to love a little bit, you know. I think uh, what I'm doing in this essay and what what I'm often doing in my work is looking for those little those orphaned parts of my experience or myself that I have rejected because I didn't understand them or they scared me or I didn't I didn't want them to be mine. And in the writing, from the safe vantage point of having survived the experience, I can go back and find them and you know, if not love them, then at least revere and acknowledge and, and claim them as my own because, um, otherwise I find that they can lead to a lot more self-violence.
0: Right. In the essay, you, you say the following, um, and it's about your mom, you and your mother are at a psychology conference where she's speaking. You're there really as a daughter and a fan. Um, but you say uh when she was done i, st- I went, when she was done speaking i I, sp- I spoke about how writing allows me to retread the most painful parts of the past and find not only new meaning but also healing there then i led the audience through a writing exercise that exemplified this and drew upon my mother's therapy model mm-hmm. <laughs> okay so let's unpack that a bit <laughs> what's the writing exercise
1: i'm trying to remember um this was uh, This was really an incredible experience Um, where we led this workshop with all of her colleagues there, right? And what was interesting is while we were leading it, it ended up being sort of, my mom was kind of the good cop and I was the bad cop. Like Mm -hmm. I was much sort of tougher on them than she was, which was this (laughs) interesting sort of um, inversion. Uh, But I think um, she had had them, um, she had had them sort of conjure up a younger version of themselves that had a feeling of shame um, attached to a specific experience, like um, in uh, adolescence or something. Um, And I had had them write to that voice and then, or from that voice and then to that voice, right? And sort of the model of therapy that she um, primarily works in um, is called IFS and it's Internal Family Systems. And it's all about sort of... um, dialoguing with the self, right, and this integration of sort of accessing a higher self um, that is capable of self-soothing and is not sort of overly blended with um, our younger, more more damaged parts that we've tried to exile. You know, it's um like the way that I just described sort of finding those orphaned or abandoned or rejected parts and reintegrating them. It's exactly what she does in, in her therapy and arguably what most psychotherapy does. Um, but so I spoke about it in terms of, you know, writing vocabulary and writing from characters' voices. Uh, but it was really sort of an enactment of this model of therapy that all of these therapists were practicing and talking about at this um, conference. And, you know, we laugh about it a lot now that we basically do the same kind of work through totally different modes, you know, um, and sometimes it's like she, she read my last book and she had this little disgruntled moment where she was like, this came directly out of a conversation we had about the therapy that I practice. And I was like, well, yeah. And she was like, oh, I guess you come by it honestly. And I was like, I totally <laughs> do. Like, thank you.
0: <laughs> but so, um, but, but the other interesting idea that's embedded in there is the idea that writing about something is therapeutic. And mm-hmm. and I wanted to fret that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't want to say, um, you know, Melissa, bullshit, but, uh, but yep. I want to fret it in the no, sense No, come
1: of, at me. I I, well,
0: <laughs> but I want to fret <laughs> it, and be, because what's one of the things that's very intriguing about Whip Smart, mm-hmm. which is the same thing that's very intriguing about several of the essays in Abandon Me, especially the title essay, is there's a, there's that incredible moment in Abandon Me where um, you are kind of semi dating in a state of quasi breakup mm-hmm. the the beloved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, you're supposed to go on this date, I guess, out to the beach. And you make the, you, you, oh, you, 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 you guys, yeah. you know, you guys, <laughs> you, you get the call and, and you you're, you know, your lover is furious that you're out with somebody else. And so here you are kind of migrating back to this person.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then you tell your, you tell your real confidant friend that you're going back yet again And there's an amazing moment where your friend is like, just call me when it's over, Mm -hmm. which is to say that on a certain level, Mm -hmm. right, the therapy, the therapeutic aspect is happening in the experience Mm -hmm. per se. Mm -hmm. So my question is, how is writing about it therapeutic? Right. I mean, I mean, is it recollection and tranquility or are you on your knees before the event? Right. Does that make sense?
1: Um, I don't think it's either. I mean, I think I'm on my knees during the event. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't retain my capacity for reflection in the moment. Like when I am, when like I'm forgetting now. My therapist is so, just so, explaining so, so, to me so the parts the- of the brain that are engaged when I am in crisis or I'm in fight or flight or I'm suffering, preclude reflection right right? and so I I, I'm an animal in that moment and I'm just trying to survive it all the material is there right all of the ingredients for insight are there but I can't couple them in the way I can't perform that kind of psychological alchemy right I can only do it later when I'm in the writing and then I mean for me another way of describing writing would be sort of building a diorama of what happened and moving everybody through it but now I'm calm and I have access to that higher self who can zoom out a little bit and and see all of the ingredients that are in there and sort of really sort of make that meal of insight. I
0: I, I know how I want to put this because <clears throat> and I know I, I guess your mother is a is is either heavily influenced by Buddhism or is is mm-hmm. uh it's interesting a lot of psychologists I know end up landing on Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um but uh I guess what I'm saying is I'm not saying you're suggesting this but the thing that you write is not reified or fixed like in other words just because you wrote it mm-hmm. and you understand it mm-hmm. doesn't mean you're cured right do you get what I'm saying yeah
1: absolutely but you, you,
0: yeah that's what that's that's totally. what I'm trying to get at
1: totally no i think and i think this is where people get caught up when they say it's not therapy it's not like anti redemption narratives and i think we don't. I don't disagree. I think we have a different definition of yep, so what catharsis or redemption mean. And for me, it's a big, capacious. It's not an endpoint, right? It's a process. It's part of a process. It's moving you to a different location on the map of understanding, right? It's um, making complicating the story, and it's just new information, right? And for me. Um, you know, I'm taking those ingredients, I am combining them, I'm integrating it into myself. I'm just moving forward, right? Because experiences like the things I write about, if I don't process them in that way, then I just replay them in my mind and then I replay them in my life, right? As as I understood from being a a dominatrix. And maybe we can talk about that later. Oh, but yeah, oh, you know, I saw that in my in my clients. And so for me, and and you know, this is like it's, scientifically proven like writing about a thing creating a narrative you know one way that therapy is described as you know creating a story that you can live with um and you know i guess i would complicate that some by saying it's it's creating a new version of a story and it doesn't mean that you aren't going to move on to a new one beyond that right but i get to move on in some some way i get to leave some version of it behind well
0: so uh, well uh it's a perfect segue because my next my next question was about it's so central to your work, which is the relationship between tra- trauma and repetition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in *Thesmophoria*, which is, um, would almost like to take sort of a you know a mytho psychological uh, 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 look, look, look look at separation, mm-hmm. at the cleaving between parent and child, mm-hmm. uh, differentiation through, you know, like a mytho-psychological lens Mm -hmm. as a a sequence of cleavings. Mm -hmm. In the Mm -hmm. sense that, cleaving in the sense of separating and coming back. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's so central in Abandon Me and it's so Mm -hmm. central in Whip Smart and I was just wondering um, why that is so central for you.
1: I I wonder if we all have this. um, But I have spent my life sort of banging my head against the fact that things that hurt are correct (laughs) and are a part, can be healthy and necessary and a part of a, a process that is natural. Like I remember being, I remember my first, I mean, arguably my first love, you know, I had this best friend in like middle school, junior high, and it was the the first girl I ever kissed um, and she was also my best friend and our friendship sort of ended um, because of some external forces her family um, and we became estranged and I just remember that I couldn't digest it like I couldn't compute that information that someone I had known and loved who had been like my primary person for for a time and who I had known so well and felt so known by could then go back to being a stranger and just recede into sort of the masses of everyone else. Um, it felt like a crime against nature, you know? And that is that is nature. It was cyclical. It was sort of a part of the peaks and troughs of sort of social life and relationships with human beings. And But I have felt that at every breakup and every ending and every such cleaving in a relationship. And I think this is sort of the foundational part of that, right? Is that... Um, is that separation from the mother. And and for me, I think, particularly because I was so close with my mother, um, this is me going back to the beginning to reassert the fact that something that is painful and can feel violent can also be necessary, right? And maybe that's what I'm doing with all of this, is saying, so that addiction, so that sex work, so that abusive relationship, so that compulsion, that obsession, it wasn't wrong and it wasn't murder. It was just... Painful, but it was also necessary.
0: You, um, you, you kind of, I think, answered my question. My question was going to be: so, for you, is this, are the or the uh, is the primary geometric of life cyclical, cyclical or is our progress quasi-linear?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, what do I know, Adam? It seems like total hubris <laughs> to well, answer that. Well, 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 but well, I, but do... I mean,
0: in in your work, yeah, uh, yeah, in your work, your work seems to yeah. posit that there is. There's a bit of either or there. Yeah, there is.
1: I mean, I think the way that it makes the most sense to me is, is much more cyclical, yep. right? Um, but I think in order to tell stories about it, I have to impose a kind of linearity. Um, and in order to think, it's, you know, I have to sort of unravel the spool to look at the thread, right? But that doesn't um, contradict the fact that it's a spool or a tangle or whatever.
0: Well, speaking of linearity, I want to read you... Uh, I want to read you one of my absolute favorite quotes from *Abandon Me* because it it relates to this. Um, but what does it mean to be taken care of? Mm. Material security, adoration—until we obtain these, they seem the objects of our desire. But these concepts of care are false fronts. They're colorful screens we rip through. As soon as we reach them, we really want the undoing of our earliest wounds. And sometimes, in our attempts to correct the errors of our childhoods, we choose the exact thing we hope to avoid. We recognize a chance for love's redemption and run toward it. We hope for a different ending. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it, has a, it has a kind of Miltonic structure, really. I mean, of just that kind of like... Uh, Uh, Edenic fall. And Mm -hmm. I think there's so much shame when when two people are intimate and they fail to write this new ending. Mm -hmm. In Abandon Me, it's interesting, it's very ironic because it leads to the end of the relationship between you and your lover, but it also paves the way for a degree of reconciliation between you and your estranged father.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. And so I was wondering if, in the case of the former, do you ever wonder if you and that former lover could have written a different ending? I'm, I guess what I'm trying to ask, I mean, you can answer that tautologically and say, no, Adam, I mean, we didn't write a different ending because <laughs> we didn't write a different ending. But what I'm trying to say is, we've, we've concluded that, that the primary geometrics of your work are life is, is, is cyclical. Mm-hmm. And in the context of long relationships, can two people rewrite that ending when they come to the shame of not having written a different ending. Because you know it's it's it's, it's again, it's shot throughout your work. It's the people stuck in the dungeons mm-hmm. who don't seem to be able to write a different mm-hmm. ending, who are just mm-hmm. on an infinite loop of repeating certain traumas.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's 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 the it's the central sort of emotional uh, not tragedy, but pain in your life with your parents.
1: Mm-hmm
0: who couldn't write a different ending, mm-hmm. which is so beautifully addressed uh, in Abandon Me mm-hmm. um, when after the mother's affair and mm-hmm. and how that in, in some way undoes the father's, the illusion the father mm-hmm. needs for the marriage to work. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I was wondering if you could speak to that.
1: Yeah, I don't know if this is a, a direct answer to that. Um, but I do think that we're coming back again to sort of this idea of of binary thinking, or um, you know, there's a lot in "Abandoned Me" about ideals and fantasy, and this kind of childlike desire to have um, some kind of perfect love, or to be rescued, or to be taken care of. I mean, that's what that passage is about. Is that deep? And I had so much shame about this when I was younger. Like, I just had this, like, for all of my, like almost fascistic self-sufficiency and independence. I just desperately craved in some part of me to be cared for. And, you know, in this way that I think its roots went all the way back to childhood, right? Um, But we can't ever ask that of another person. I mean, the other person, the lover in that story, completely separate from who she was or what our compatibility was, like what I was looking for in that relationship was unattainable. It was not a relationship. Well, the per- the right? person who,
0: the person who wouldn't leave.
1: Yeah, exactly. And someone but who kept leaving. Yeah. Someone who would sort of perform this fantasy that ultimately, you know, it's, this, this is the problem with binary thinking. It's always going to contain the opposite. The thing you don't want, it's always going to slingshot you right back into that other thing, you know? Um, and I think, We become capable of rewriting the story only when we become capable of a more nuanced perspective on it. You know, I could go back to my birth father and approach him and the story of us in a different way once I became open to not to a less simplistic narrative. Right. More to the story of, you know, the story I grew up with was that and decided on very young was that he was a loser and a failure and I didn't need him and it meant nothing and we had no connection right <laughs> and once i became we
0: should we should we should make a distinction here between the between your birth father right this is versus, my birth father vers- versus the captain yeah the
1: captain right. my father that's right. my dad you know right. but but my birth father um once I became sort of curious about him and able to just see him as a human being and someone to whom I was inextricably connected and had a lot in common with, um, then I was able to go back and and really sort of rewrite that ending, rewrite that story um, and by being sort of curious and open to it and it wasn't... Um, I wasn't looking for this like golden ring, you know. Um and he got to be a human being. And I think in that relationship that other person, you know, so, the accountability that I found in writing that book was that I was was wanting her to be a golden ring, right? Instead of a human being. I think we both were. And that that is often ha- where relationships fail, right? But it is sort of through that, you know, the end of abandon me is really a weird sort of beginning, right? Because I finally let go. And, you know, I can say that um, what followed after that book, and this will be sort of the story in the next book, some of it anyway, um, really allowed me to sort of let go of that binary thinking, let go of that golden ring and really sort of be curious and open to a human being that contained both light and dark um, and who I wasn't looking for redemption from, Mm -hmm. right?
0: Mm -hmm. So that's where Going backwards, as it were, in time. I just finished Whip Smart. I found it deeply stirring.
1: Stir- what did it stir up?
0: Well, I'll get to that. <laughs> but in the parlance of S and i I'd like to conduct the rest of this interview, it, topping from the bottom.
1: Oh God! And my,
0: um, <laughs> my, my, my safe words are Sawani Review. <laughs> so, Mistress.
1: Oh, no. I've been a good boy. <laughs>
0: I was wondering if you would please read the following passage from Whip Smart, but in the voice of Miss Piggy, or or Nurse Ratchet, whichever you prefer. I I have a dark place in my soul for Muppets, but we'll...
1: I mean, don't we all? We'll we'll, we'll talk. Speaking of archetypes. I know. We'll we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Okay. Whips are the most elegant of a dominatrix's tools. Mechanisms that rely on skill and accuracy rather than strength. Their strength is in simple physics. All the energy of that long tail's undulation collects in the narrow tip. And when it touches you, it is a finger of fire. With that strength under my control, I did feel powerful. I took pleasure in his pain. The humiliation of the first 45 minutes had cultivated that sadism in me. I had always thought of sadism as a predisposition, a condition you couldn't easily catch or shake. I had not thought it so fluid, something that could be engendered by an hour's resentment. After a couple more well-aimed licks, I put down the whip and walked forward to face him. His breath smelled like rubber. The gag was wet, and saliva dripped from the corners of his open mouth. Though his eyes skittered across my face, their dark centers were level. Jack also knew how to withstand. Who was this man? What did we have in common to have both ended up in this room? I teetered over his face, peering into it for a dizzy moment. In what direction had this man come from and where was he going? It was a feeling too objective to be compassion, but I suddenly felt unequal footing with him. For a moment, we formed two halves of a perfectly balanced scale.
0: The crazy thing about Whip Smart to me, it almost makes you believe in a watchmaker god.
1: Ooh, tell me more.
0: Well, in the sense that in the sense that how perfect it is that a person who's stuck in a mm-hmm. compartmentalized world, in a compartment in a compartmentalized self,
1: mm-hmm.
0: who because of addiction and because of the inability to break open her various matryoshka-doll selves, mm-hmm. finds herself standing across from another person who, mm-hmm. in a way, mm-hmm. is similarly stuck. Mm-hmm. It, it, and, and, and I think what's also kind of astonishing about it is, and you talk about this often, is how the answer can be right there. I
1: know. I mean, that's what I'm thinking as you're talking, is that it's so obvious, right? right? I mean that watchmaker god is of course like the psyche. It knows exactly what it is and and what it needs, right? But we don't. Um and just it's so it's so transparent. I mean and this is always true. People are so transparent, you know, like if we stop thinking about ourselves for one second, we can see exactly what's going on with other people, but it took me writing a whole book to get there to see that I had even when I left there, I would have these moments, but I would go right back to, to my cozy story of thinking I was totally different from them um, and it took really writing the book for me to, to see that perfectly balanced scale, even though I was I was living it for so long
0: which to again to fret the idea of the cyclical mm-hmm. since we mm-hmm. don't want to we don't want to land on any uh, a mm-hmm. definitive answer, mm-hmm. which would be very Buddhist of us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know there are these there are these really lovely moments of kind of linear progression of it, as it were mm-hmm. not in the sense of not in the sense of just and then and then and then or mm-hmm. you know where she understands mm-hmm. that uh, well she you no um, she is
1: good done and that's what i she
0: she finds a toehold in things that are certain so that she can't go back mm-hmm. to that place where she looks across
1: yeah yeah
0: the room and doesn't uh a uh, uh, mistake or mm-hmm. or or misread or or not see what is actually mm-hmm. staring right in front of her.
1: I think that's exactly right. um and and I think that that's what drove writing this book because this book the the living of it was cyclical in that in that sense of, you know, I have a line from this Andy Dillard essay tattooed on me, and it is um, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of a single necessity. And I love that line because of the sort of duality of it, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of a single necessity. Depending on whether you add agency to that statement or not, it becomes freedom or bondage, right? And so that cyclical nature of... um, addiction is sort of the dark side of it, where you don't have agency and you're living the same thing over and over again. And it's the bondage of, you know, a, a post-traumatic life, right? right? That, that is unprocessed yes. or that is unhealed is that it's cyclical. And that was what I saw in my clients and what I thought made us different, but what actually made us the same. Correct.
0: No, no that's that's the absolute horror of cyclicality. Interestingly, and, and this was one of the things that uh, I haven't seen anybody talk about regarding WhipSmart, um, which, by the way, is we were we were joking beforehand about how you were wedded to the idea of calling the book "Topping from the Bottom." What mm-hmm. I love about Whip Smart is I've, is is just the 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 not bald irony, but the lovely irony of how mm-hmm. she's not as smart as she thinks. No, she really and, isn't. And and but um, what what I love so much in some of the scenes was the very thin line, uh between performance and in some ways the breakdown of the fourth wall which would be mm-hmm. humor mm-hmm. there were the 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 few sometimes the doms would occasionally catch each other looking at each other <laughs> and 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 just and 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 have to do everything they could to suppress laughter it, it, it i often wonder when i'm watching like an avengers movie or something mm-hmm. if if they just look at each other and they're like Jesus Christ! Look at us when we're know. dressed up. In. Well,
1: don't you love that's why people are so obsessed with bloopers. Like we <laughs> love that.
0: No, no, we love that, but but just also in it. It gets a little more intense in latex. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, my point is, is that you know what for you was going on there? Because what's interesting is that, the, the, I mean, so much of what happens in those dungeons is heavy,
1: mm-hmm. heavy. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and and there's not a lot of there's not a lot of emotional data from you i guess partly because you were you were high mm-hmm. but of b- both of the fear and revulsion of what's mm-hmm. going on i mean mm-hmm. there're just certain things that just happen that are just
1: mm-hmm. some
0: people just can't go there and yet occasionally there's this moment this sliver via humor mm-hmm. where it might all collapse and so mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what I'm getting at, but theres it just seems to me that there's an element almost shot through everything we do of performance.
1: Yeah, it's really true. And, and it's so interesting to think about, and I don't have a perfect answer to this, but but I know that it reverberates really widely in my life, this um, idea of sort of humor being this collapse of narrative and this collapse of performance. And, you know, it's like I my writing is for the most part, pretty serious and pretty heavy and sort of complex. And But, like, Adam, I'm ridiculous in my life. Like, I'm constantly cracking jokes, and I laugh very easily. I'm extremely gullible. Like, it's really sort of the opposite. Um, And, like, I wake up really cheerful every morning. It's bizarre. Um, And I think, like, when I was a dom, there was – I mean, on one hand, I was deeply invested in these narratives. Like, I was – exercising some really important material in those sessions. And I was also handling other people's trauma. And, you know, I was like 19, 20 years old. Um, and it was really heavy. And it was disgusting a lot of the time and and incredibly powerful, right? And And I think, you know, any good performance depends on your believing in it, right? And I really did. I really sort of became that mistress or whatever role I was playing. Uh, but there was something about having another person in the room with you where there's just like that little tear in the screen. I mean, it was such like just now it's making me feel this sort of effervescent. <laughs> it was so much fun. And and I think part of it was the shock of the difference. And this is true. It's, you know, it was like just the other day I was telling a friend of mine about how, you know, I had this sort of like back bad back issue last year and I have slowly collected all of these weird orthopedic pillows that I now sleep with, like one that I tie around my waist and one that I Velcro onto my thigh and it's like the unsexiest thing ever and I just sort of do it in my life and it's this kind of like uh, cumbersome fact but as I was telling her about it, I I suddenly recognized that it was fucking hilarious, you know, and she was like, stop, stop. She was laughing so hard and just like as soon as you let someone else into the room that transform. Ma- I mean, it's just magic.
0: That is that that is the opposite of a dominatrix outfit. The
1: yeah, it truly is. It that, is that just is, like that is, that is armor. A, that is
0: what Stanley Elkin would call a soft off.
1: Yes, it is. It is repellent. Okay. It is.
0: Okay. So I just want to offer this one little bit of psychology, which you okay. probably knew already because you're you're you're, you're whip smart. <laughs> but um, here's my here's my reading of something you always talk about. Your clumsiness. Oh yeah. You're just you know. So uh-huh. here's my psych- here's my psychological okay. reading of it. It's, it's, you're, you're just someone who needs to bump into the world to let it hit
1: back. Oh
0: Has anyone ever said that to you before? No. It's
1: pretty that's good. That's very good. It's good, That's right? very good. It's good. Yeah. All
0: right, I'm yeah. getting on your skin just a little no, bit. No, that's
1: good. You must be a writer or something. Well, um, <laughs> thank, thank you, mistress. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> I've been a good boy. <laughs>
0: okay, wait, okay. We're going to end with this speed round. You ready? Okay, I'm ready. Here we go. The zombie apocalypse is upon us. Mm-hmm. You may take only three books with you to the bunker. Oh, they, are, they are. They are. It's the zombie apocalypse, man. Um, not your orthopedic pillows. You're taking three books. What are they?
1: Um, um, oh, fuck. Uh, uh, Siri Hughes Fett's What I Loved. Um... Uh, my fiance's first book of poetry and the Bible? Okay. I have no idea where that answer came from. Unpack okay. it at your at your will.
0: What's the best piece of writing advice you've ever received? Never stop. Who is the best living writer in America not named Donica Kelly?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um I don't believe in the best.
0: Okay. Do you have any poems memorized? And if so, could you please recite one? Not in the voice of Miss Piggy or your dominatrix alter ego, Justine.
1: I'm trying to run through it in my head to see if I actually have it memorized. When, um, when Mary Oliver died this year, I found that I had many, many bits and pieces of her poems. Incidentally, nothing that I had intentionally memorized, but just that I had read so many times. Um, Do you want to do a bit or a piece? Let me see if I can. There's one that I do want to do, but I'm not sure if I have it, but I'll do my best. Um, um, uh, Life without love is not worth a bent penny or a scuffed shoe. It is not worth the body of a dead dog nine days unburied. (laughs) I'm going to just stop there because I think I got that right. Um, Um, But she's my queen of, like, love, disgusting love poems, right? (laughs) This is the combination that I I clearly shoot for in my work a lot, where it's, like, very beautiful and also grotesque.
0: Yes. Um, On that note, beautiful and grotesque. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for being here. It was a real pleasure talking with you.
1: It was my pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Sewanee Review podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Sewanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesewanireview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at the Sewanee Review. Special thanks to our producer, Helen Wynena, and sound engineer, Alex Martin. With music by Annie Bowers. Until next time, this is The Swanee Review, new since 1892.